You're listening to the Good Samaritan Anglican Church Podcast. The following sermon was recorded on the third Sunday of Lent, March 24th, 2019. A reading from the book of Exodus. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression which with the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. A burning bush, a shepherd, a call, and the name of God. Our Old Testament lesson from Exodus today is certainly one of the most important passages in the whole of the Old Testament. This passage from Exodus is the fulfillment of God's promise to Abram last week. If you were here last week, you'll remember hearing that God was promising Abram that he would give him uh, a nation full of children, that he would give him eventually land to occupy and possess the land of Canaan. But he also told him that his descendants would not live in that land for quite a long time. Here's what exactly God said to Abram. 
Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and they will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And already here today, 400 years later, we can see some of this coming to fulfillment. For one thing, Abraham's descendants had become quite numerous. So numerous, in fact, that Pharaoh was getting nervous about how many Hebrews there were among the population of Egyptians. We'll talk about that in just a second. Second of all, God's people were dwelling in a land that was not their own. The land of Egypt was most certainly not a land of their own because they were slaves in Egypt. And fourth, this was coming to pass about 400 years after God's initial promise to Abram. So last week we were all talking about waiting on the promises of God. Well, this is where God's promises all come true for Abram. It took a long time. It took 400 years. But this is where God's promises are all coming true for Abram. And now it's time to look at God's promises to another person, to Moses, and to Abram's descendants, the people of Israel. Moses himself was a survivor of the suffering of God's people. Moses grew up in Pharaoh's household, but it was a miracle that he did so because he was a Jew. And all of the Jews in Egypt were slaves to Pharaoh. All of the Jews in Egypt were required to make bricks and to do other household labors, and they had no pay, and they suffered greatly in this circumstance. And Pharaoh himself, because he saw how numerous God's people had become, became nervous to the point where he ordered that every male Hebrew baby should be slaughtered upon birth. Moses was a Hebrew baby, but he was saved, he was spared. His mother hid him for as long as she was able to hide him. And then when she couldn't hide him any longer, she put him in that basket. You all probably remember this story. Put him in that basket and floated him down the Nile. I can't imagine doing that to my child. But that's what she felt like she had to do. And that basket made its way right to Pharaoh's own daughter. And she falls in love with this child. And she takes him into her own household and raises her in Pharaoh's household until he's a man. So Moses was spared from the suffering of of his people, but he always knew that he was a Hebrew. And his own mother was given the chance to nurse him and to raise him until he was old enough to live in Pharaoh's house. So right there, he's a survivor. But when he grows up, he sees one of his fellow Hebrews being oppressed by an Egyptian soldier, and he strikes down the Egyptian and kills him and buries him in the sand. And he thinks nobody saw, but the next day he finds out that somebody saw him and that even Pharaoh knows about it. And so he has to flee from Egypt, from everything he knows, from everyone that he loves, to spare his own life. And that's where we find him today. He's fled to a a far-off land called Midian. He's taken a wife uh, in the people of Midian, and he's become a shepherd for his father-in-law Jethro's flock. And so he's wandering around in the wilderness caring for sheep, this man who grew up in a very wealthy household with all the things that he could possibly want ever. That's a pretty stark change of circumstances for Moses. 
And so you can imagine how he might have felt. He probably felt somewhat dejected and maybe depressed. And all of this is important in understanding why Moses responds to God's good news in the way that he does. Did you hear the good news in the, in the passage that we read today? Moses is tending his sheep, minding his own business, and all of a sudden, a burning bush catches his attention. And a burning bush would catch my attention, too. If something's burning, you're naturally curious about why it's burning and if something else is going to catch on fire. And so he goes over and looks at it, and the bush is not consumed as it's being burned. And then the voice of God himself speaks to Moses out of this burning bush. He's got Moses' attention. And what he says to Moses is, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, and I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and all those other people. That's good news. God's people are finally going to be saved. They're finally going to be delivered from the hand of their oppressors. And then God goes on to say some good news for Moses. He says to Moses, Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Now that's a pretty remarkable thing. Not only is God going to deliver his people, but God has chosen Moses, this man who was dejected and rejected from his own household. God has chosen this Moses to be the deliverer of his people the one who would save his people from slavery in Egypt. And so what does Moses say? He says, yeah, let's do it. No, he says just the opposite. He says, why me? He says, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and deliver the children of Israel out of Egypt? You can imagine all the things that might have been going through his head at this, at this calling from God. First of all, who was it that he fled when he left Egypt? Pharaoh. And God is telling him to go back to Egypt and to go talk to Pharaoh. That alone would make Moses feel kind of scared. But more than that, Moses was nervous about facing up to Pharaoh, even apart from his past, uh, past escapades in, in killing that Egyptian. He was afraid to face Pharaoh because he was afraid to stand in the face of power and to say the things that he was going to have to say. Imagine if you were called to go and stand before the President of the United States and make an appeal. Now, that would be scary for most of us, even though your life isn't in danger, even though talking to the President is not going to, to hurt you in any way, shape, or form. He, the worst he could do is say no to whatever your request is. But Pharaoh had the power to kill Moses. And so Moses responds to God, not, yes, we'll go, but who am I that I should do this? Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever felt like God was calling you to do something that you didn't know if you were able to do it? Why would God choose me to do this? What can I accomplish? Maybe it's a project at work. Maybe it's raising your children. Maybe it's some form of public speaking, something that 
75% of the population is afraid of? Moses was afraid of it. Or maybe it's a person that God wants you to reach with the gospel. In all these situations and many more, we might listen to God's voice and say, why me? Who am I? Why should I be the one to do this? I'm nothing. And God responds to Moses with some of the most comforting words he could possibly respond with. Moses says, who am I? And God says, but I will be with you. But I will be with you. And this is a promise that God gives to his people at least nine times in the rest of the Old Testament. And many more times when we get into the New Testament. It's a promise that God gives to various different people at various periods and circumstances in Israel's history. I will be with you. And then when Jesus comes in the New Testament, he leaves the glory of heaven, he leaves his throne up above, and he comes down to earth, he takes on human flesh. And the prophet Isaiah speaks of this, and he says one of the names of Jesus will be Emmanuel, which is God with us. I will be with you. And then when Jesus is ready to ascend into heaven, he tells his disciples that they shouldn't fear because he will send another helper, the Holy Spirit. And what does he say about the Holy Spirit? He will be with you. So no matter what circumstances we face in this life, we can know and trust that God is with us in every circumstance, whatever that might be, whatever it is that scares us, whatever it is that overwhelms us, we can rest in the fact that God chooses us not because of our own strength. In fact, God rarely chooses people because of their own strength. More likely, God chooses people because of their inadequacy. Because God can demonstrate his own power through them. God tells Paul, when Paul asks for a thorn in his flesh to be removed, we don't know what the thorn was, It was some kind of pain, some kind of ailment, some kind of impediment. We don't know what it was. But Paul prays for it to be removed from him, and God responds, My grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in your weakness. And so it's okay if you feel weak, because God is with you. And it's God's strength who will work through you. No matter where you go, God is right there with you. No matter how difficult your circumstances, God is always ready to lend his strength and his support to help you and support you through whatever it is that you're going through. Things usually go wrong when we think that the outcome ultimately depends on us. Now, this doesn't mean we have no responsibility, but our responsibility is delegated and it's accomplished only through God's strength. And so ultimately, our responsibility is his responsibility. We have a part to play, but it's God working through us. And if we fail to do what he's calling us to do, he'll raise up someone else to do it anyway. God's will will be accomplished. But he desires to work through you. He invites you to participate. Just like a father invites his sons and daughters to participate in the work that he does. This is what our father does, our heavenly father. One commentator on this passage about Moses says, self-distrust is good, but only if it leads to trust in God. Otherwise, it ends as spiritual paralysis, 
inability and unwillingness to undertake any course of action. After this response to Moses, where God says, I will be with you, Moses has no right to protest any further. He does protest further. We'll see that uh, later on in, in, as this chapter extends. Moses protests over and over and over again. But at this point, he has no right to protest any further. It's now no longer lack of self-reliance, which is good, but it's lack of faith, which is sin. When we refuse to trust that God will be with us and that God will accomplish his will through us, that's not a, a humility, it's a lack of faith in God. So Moses has run out of objections, even though he's going to come up with some more later on. So he now turns his attention from away, away from who he is to who God is. Who is God? What is his name, is actually the question he asks. And so in verse 13, we see something kind of puzzling. Moses says, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? Now that's puzzling because when God first introduces himself out of the burning bush, Moses has no question about his identity. He says, do not come near. Take off your sandals for the place where you're standing is holy ground. And then he says to him, I am the God of your father the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hides his face because he's afraid to look at God. That doesn't sound like a man who's confused about who's talking to him. He's thoroughly convinced that the person talking to him out of the bush is God himself. And so why is he now asking what God's name is? Why is he inferring that when he goes to the people, they're going to ask what God's name is as some kind of a a proof of what he had seen? This is not so much a question of identity. It's a question of authority and power. In other words, Moses is saying to God, it's nice that you want to save my people, but how can I know that you will come through? How can I know that you're going to do what you say you're going to do? How can my people believe that you're going to say what you're going to do? Remember, the people of Israel had been oppressed in Egypt, for more than 400 years. They were probably questioning why God hadn't done something yet. What are you up to, God? If you care about us, why don't you do something? Maybe they were wondering if God was able to do something. Who are you? There are all kinds of titles and names for God that we see in the Old Testament. There are things like Elohim, which is sort of a generic vanilla word for God. There's El Elyon, which is the Most High God. There's El Olam, the Everlasting God. And there's perhaps the most common El Shaddai, which means Lord God Almighty. But all of these are really more titles for God than they are names for God. And in the Old Testament, when God was getting to do, ready to do something new, sometimes he would reveal a new title about himself, telling people what he was about to do. So, I am God, your healer, or I am God, your banner. But here, God is saying that he's getting ready to reveal his actual name to Moses. Not his title, but his actual name. 
In Genesis 6, 2 through 3, I'm sorry, Exodus 6, 2 through 3, just a, a couple chapters after where we are right now, God speaks to Moses and he says to him, I am the Lord, I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, which is El Shaddai. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. So God is getting ready to reveal to Moses something that he didn't even reveal to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the great patriarchs. Do you remember when you first realized that your parents had names? This is sort of a, a revelation to most of us at some point, that your parents are not just mom and dad or mommy and daddy, but they actually have a name. And other people call them by a name that you don't call them by. That's kind of a, a st stark, startling realization. I remember uh, when I was a boy, we would go and visit my grandparents who lived in Connecticut, and we lived in Pennsylvania. And so it was a long trip. We didn't get to see them very often. But I always thought it was weird. I knew my dad's name was Arnold at that point, not just dad, but Arnold. But I thought it was strange because when we went to Connecticut, everybody started calling him Bill. My grandfather's name was also Arnold, Arnold Emil Klukas, and my dad's name was Arnold William Klukas, and so they always called him Bill or Billy when he was growing up. Everybody I knew knew him as Arnold, but in his own hometown, he was known as Billy. That was a strange thing for me to realize, that my dad had this, this whole other life that I knew nothing about. And it's similar to what God is doing here with Moses. Up to this point, God's people have known God by various titles. God, in a generic sense, or God Almighty, or Most High God. But now God was getting ready to reveal his actual name. So what is his actual name? God says it in verse 14. God says to Moses, I am who I am. And he says, Say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. Now, what kind of a name is I am? That's kind of a strange name, isn't it? It's the name of a dog food, I am's. That came later. Yeah, thank you. Um, what is, it's the verb to be. I mean, who names their child I am? That's kind of a, a strange, strange name for someone to have. What is God saying through this? It's actually a very special and holy name. In Genesis 3.15, or Exodus 3.15, the very next verse, it says, this is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. This is how God wants his people to know him. Throughout all generations, including this generation, because we are a generation, many generations after Moses. It's not a secret name. God tells Moses that when he goes and speaks to Pharaoh, he's supposed to say, I am the God of the Hebrews has sent me to you. So it's not a secret, but it is special, and it is holy, and it is set apart. Later on, when God gives the Ten Commandments to Moses on the mountain, the third commandment that he gives has to do with his name and the right use of his name. He says, you shall not take the name of the Lord, and when he says the Lord, he, he literally says, you shall not take the name I am in vain. 
It's supposed to be set apart and holy. And God's people treated his name as holy in a number of different ways. First of all, even today, if you go to a Jewish synagogue, they will read from a scroll. And the scroll is kept in a special place. It has a special veil that's put over it. And it's actually handwritten by a scribe. It's not printed out on a a computer printer. It's actually handwritten by a scribe. And when the scribe writes it, the scribe will leave a space for every place where the name of the Lord is to be written. And the very last thing the scribe does when he completes the manuscript is to fill in God's name in each and every spot on that manuscript. At that point, it becomes a holy object. Or, when people pronounce the name of the God, most people wouldn't pronounce the name of God in fear that they were going to take the name of God in vain. And so, in Israel, only one person, the high priest, would say God's name one time per year in the Holy of Holies as he was offering sacrifice. That was how seriously they took it. Everybody else, when they said God's name, didn't actually say God's name. What they did is they took the Hebrew word for Lord, which is Adonai, and they took the vowels of that and they filled in the spaces of the consonants for God's actual name, which is Y-H-Y-H, if you translate it into, into English. And so they would come up with the word Jehovah. You heard that in our first hymn today, Guide me, O thou great Jehovah. And so that was their solution to not taking God's name in vain. They came up with a, a similar word that combined Lord and God together so they wouldn't actually say God's actual name. And in your Bibles, even today, if you look at this passage or most pages of the Old Testament, you'll see a lot of the time when it says the Lord, the word Lord is written in all capital letters, L-O-R-D. And when you see it written in all capital letters instead of uh, capital L, lowercase O-R-D, what that means is that it's not actually the Lord in the Hebrew, it's Yahweh. Y-H-W-H, the name of God, I am. And so even in our English Bibles, for the most part, we don't actually print the name of God. We print the Lord, Adonai, the Hebrew substitute for the name of God, because God's name is holy and we don't want to take it in vain. And so even today, we want to be cautious about how we speak of God. We don't want to use God's name as a swear word. We don't want to text OMG or put it on Facebook. We don't want to say, oh God, or Jesus. His name is not a swear word. His name is holy. He wants us to use it, but he wants us to use it when we're calling on him, not when we're making a point. God's name is a statement of being. God's name is a statement of being. This is not the God of the past, This is not the God of the future. This is God who is. God who always is. God who is always present. Remember God's words to Moses, I will be with you. This is the God who is. And that's in contrast to all the other gods who aren't. There are lots of other names of other gods. All of them are false. Baal, Ashtaroth, You could think of Roman gods and goddesses, Zeus, Aphrodite. You could think of Norse gods and goddesses like Thor. All of these are false gods. There's only one true God, and his name is I Am. 
He's the God who is. So don't take the Lord's name in vain, but also don't be afraid to call upon Yahweh because he will always be with you. When you need help, he's there. When things are too overwhelming, he's there. When you need more strength than you possess, he's there. Don't be afraid to call on him. He's the God of our fathers. He's the God who provides. He's the God who heals. He is God Almighty. And so regardless of what you're struggling with, or regardless of the overwhelming obstacles he's calling you to overcome, remember, he is mighty to save. He alone has the strength to deliver you. And he himself will be with you forever. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for being the God who is. We thank you that you are mighty to save and that you are always with us. We thank you that you've sent the Holy Spirit into our hearts to dwell with us forever. And so we pray, Lord, that you would give us an awareness of your presence and that you'd help us to turn to you first, that you'd help us to rely on your strength in all things, and that you would lead us and guide us and deliver us. For you are God Almighty, El Shaddai, Yahweh. Amen. This has been a production of Good Samaritan Anglican Church in Middleburg, Florida. For more sermons, sermon notes, and information about our congregation, please visit www.goodsamaritananglican.org sermons. If this podcast has been helpful to you, please subscribe and leave us a review with your favorite podcast player. Thank you for listening. God bless you.